Bible reading for tonight is Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and verse 2. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to those of us that are at Kirawee and everybody who's watching online. My name's Stuart and we're going to be opening up the passage of Romans 12 tonight and we're going to be looking at some other passages as well in relation to the topic that we have for tonight which is on worship. We're talking about worship as one of the key values of a Christian and we've been encouraging ourselves in this series on committed, being a committed Christian about the values of a committed Christian and what are the things that we really value, what are the things we're going to be really passionate about and tonight we're going to be talking about being passionate about passion. We're going to be talking about worshipping our Heavenly Father And I'm going to pray for us now as we begin to look at what it looks like to be a living sacrifice, to pledge our life and soul in the service of our almighty God in view of all the loving, wonderful things he's done for us, that our appropriate response to him is to live for him. So we're going to bow our heads now and pray and ask God to give us eyes to see and ears to hear tonight. So will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this passage that Paul has beautifully written for us that we can understand our true and proper response to you is worship. Help us to understand worship tonight and help us to understand uh, how it might make a difference in our lives and a difference to many others. Lord, thank you that you are about building your church and you call us to partner with you as you build your church. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to take you back today to uh, a year many, many uh, decades ago, actually now, unfortunately, it's becoming further and further distant memory. The year is 1977. Bit of a show of hands. Did anybody here alive in 1977? Few people alive in 1977. Awesome. If you were there or you had forgotten what that year was like in the cloud of history that you've lived through, or if you weren't there, let me give you some highlights from 1977. 1977 was the year the Concorde flew for the first time. This shows you how long ago it was because now the Concorde is retired and they no longer fly it. But It was brand spanking new in 1977 and in October the 20th it flew out of JFK airport for the first time to set a record for flying between London and New York. The band Boston was top of the charts. Some people nodding, some people remember that band. Jimmy Carter was sworn in as the 39th President of the United States. There was also the first computer uh, that could be used at home uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, now what was the name of the computer system? It was a Radio Shack computer. It was called the TRS-80 Micro. And I won't tell you how many RAM it had because you'll laugh because it was like really small computer, but it was actually setting the world on fire in 1977. 1977 wasn't just a great year for really exciting things. It was also a really sad year because it was the year Elvis died. Uh, August 19, 1977. Uh, Elvis uh, passed away, who was a famous musician, for those of you too young to remember. But there was another thing that happened in 1977 that I want to draw your attention to. It was the first time that Kiara won the Guymere Public School 4x4 relay. (laughs) 1977. And I say with a great deal of humility, not only was I there to witness that great event, but I may or may not have participated in that relay team running third. I still remember the colour of the baton. It was red. Didn't match our house. I was quite upset about that before the starter's gun. I said, shouldn't we have a baton that's supposed to be the same colour as our team? Probably would be a good idea. Does anybody know what colour Kiara is from Guymere? Kate? Yellow. How can a yellow team run with a red baton? But the teachers dismissed that as trivial. (laughs) But you see, this wasn't a trivial day. This was important because no one in Kiara took our house seriously. We were yellow. No one liked yellow in the 70s. Everyone wanted to be blue or green or red. We got yellow. 
Not only was yellow not that popular, but there was no real sport athleticism within the, the, um, the people who had the surname starting with A to E. For some reason, A to E had been missing out on all the sporty people for, for the whole of my life, which stretched back probably three or four years. I'd never witnessed Kiara win anything in a house, and so a lot of the kids who went to the house party carnival, the sporting carnival, were actually kind of a bit embarrassed to be in Kiara, so they, the other teams like Wonga, they'd, they'd celebrate their, their Wonga-ness by, you know, all these chants and cheering, and they, to be honest, they looked down on Kiara, as most people did. And so when you're in a house that everyone else looks down on, you don't want to take yourself too seriously because you're setting yourself up for a fall, and also people laugh at you. So everyone had their heads down. But there were four of us that believed in Kiara. <laughs> Even though we had not won a relay forever, which was like three or four years that we'd been at school, we believed that we had the chance this year because we had Jeff McCrowan. Jeff McCrowan was running for Kiara. And I didn't understand why, because his surname didn't start with the right letter. <laughs> and I want to say today, as I was preparing this sermon this week, it dawned on me for the first time, why was Jeff McCrowan running for Kiara? <laughs> And all I could put it down to is maybe the teachers felt sorry for our house and we had no sporty people, so they put someone and we had a shoe in. I don't know, but here he was. We didn't think of it at the time, but Jeff was running for Kiara as number four runner, which is the fastest runner in a relay. Now, you're already saying, okay, Stu, that sounds great, but what's the point? I'll tell you the point. <laughs> let me tell you the point. If you're sitting here today going, what's the point? Let me tell you what the point is. <laughs> the point is... <laughs> The point is that no one was passionate about Kiara and no one believed that we could win anything. But there were four people within Kiara who knew better. And when we lined up on that race, the four of us lined up, and if you know what a relay does, you actually spread yourself around the field because the runners have to start from the beginning and they pass the baton on. I don't know how many metres it is per runner, 25, something like that. You run around an oval, whatever. But the last runner is over there, the third runner's over there, second runner, and the first runner's always the second most nervous person on the, on the team, the, the second most, because he's second most nervous because he wants to get a good start, but he or she who's running second or third or fourth are more nervous because you might drop the baton. Have you ever dropped the baton in a relay race? Come on, hands up. Who's dropped a baton in a relay race? There's a few of us who are brave enough to admit it, but you've all done it. You've all dropped a baton in primary school. I'm telling you, everyone does it. It's really hard. Liam, Liam, you would have dropped a baton. <laughs> For those at home, Liam just said he wasn't in Kiara. Of course he didn't. He thinks it's just restricted to people whose surnames start from A to E. So if that's you today, yeah, but true, Bailey. So you, uh, you, you, we, yeah. you're from Melbourne. Yeah, let's not go there. This is going down a tunnel. I'm going back to my notes for reference. So what happens is this, right? I'll be real quick. The starter's gun goes off, bang. First runner runs, already behind by the first runner. Second runner accepts the baton, fine. I'm third. We're already behind. And I'm thinking to myself, if I can just catch up a little bit, I can give Jeff an opportunity to win this race for us because he's the only one who's going to win this race for us. So I, this is what you do, right? So you're there in this stance like this. I don't know why you do this. If you're listening to the podcast, I'm bouncing up and down in a semi-crouched position with my hand behind me in this shape. Does everyone see that? This is the shape apparently you have to do. So here I am like this. And I apparently am not supposed to look behind me because if I look behind me, I might move my hand and it might, I might lose the baton. It's up to the person behind me to slap the baton into my hand. Slap's the word. Teacher used to say to us, slap the baton, slap the baton. Slap the baton into the hand, because unless you slap the baton into the hand, they're not going to feel it. You've got to slap it, you've got to slap it, you're going to feel it. I remember him saying it to this day, that's what he said. So I'm ready for the slap, bouncing. And I don't know why I'm bouncing, but I'm doing it. Do you know what was happening on the sidelines? Every other kid in every other house was laughing at us because we were taking ourselves so seriously. And someone yelled out from the sideline, Crawshaw, why are you bouncing, man? You're not even going to grab the thing. You're already lost, you losers. Stop trying to look like you're running in the Olympics. This is Guymere Public School House Carnival and you're the worst at it. Just stand there like an Australian. Like you don't care. And just take the baton if it happens to get into your hand and if you happen to run and give it to the other dude, then make out you don't really mind. I'm, no, I'm not going to do that. 
because I've got passion for Kiara and my, <laughs> my too small for me yellow t-shirt that was already too small for me and my little stubby shorts, my white stubby shorts. I remember the fact that my shirt needed to keep getting pulled down. So I was bouncing and pulling down my shirt and holding my hand like this all the time, right? So here I am, the baton comes up, I can, all the runners go past me, the other houses, I can hear them laughing at me as they're running. Look at Kiara, you guys are hopeless. You're hopeless. And I'm like, no, nah, we're not. I'm going to get that baton. Anyway, I grabbed that baton and I ran like hell. Well, heaven. <laughs> and I grabbed the baton and I changed hands because that's what you've got to do. I got the slap, I felt the slap, I got the baton, I moved the baton across my body, I put it into my other hand and I'm running like this, because that's how you gotta run. Not like this, not like this, you gotta run like this. So that's what they told us to do, with real stiff arms. I don't know why, apparently it makes you go faster. And I run to Jeff McCrowan, and I'm worried because he's looking at me. <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to look at me. This is already bad enough that he's looking at me. But then I hear what he's saying. He's yelling out with passion like I felt. He's like, run, Stu, run. Run. You can catch him. See, Jeff could see that the guy in front of me was actually, I was catching up to him. And then I'd taken him over. And then there was only two more blokes in front of me. And in my leg, I caught two people. And then all I had to do was slap that baton like that. I ran up behind Jeff. I said, stop looking, man. Turn around. <laughs> it was hopeless, really. I mean, I think we were in fourth class or something, so it wasn't quite as exciting as this, but this is what I remember. And so I'm running, and I slap the bat, and he grabs the bat, and he takes off, and oh, my goodness, it was like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. <laughs> he ran like the wind. He ran and ran and ran, and he ran down the guy in front of him, and he ran around the bend and the whole school was cheering for Kiara. It had never happened before. They were worshipping Jeff McCrowan. <laughs> there were people, he was, he was a pretty good looking kid and a lot of the girls thought he was a bit of all right. So they were screaming for him because they were trying to get his attention. So they might not have cared who won. But the crescendo of noise, I'm standing there watching him and as he crossed the line and he won the relay for Kiara. And I felt passion. Now, I want to pause here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I've got two, I've elicited passion from two other people in the room. I couldn't breathe because I'd run so hard. My hands were on my knees and I just was so excited and elated. I'd never been so excited in my whole life. I felt like we'd proved the doubters wrong. We'd won the race. And for the first time, Kiara could hold its head up high. And it was all because of Jeff because he ran like the wind. And he wasn't even part of Kiara anyway, because his, his name ended in McCrowan. So, yeah, it's a bit of a spoiler there. But anyway, why am I talking about this in regard to the, tonight's sermon? Well, Paul in Romans has spent 11 chapters describing how great Jesus is. Now, if you... Some people are still stuck on the 1970 relay win. We can talk about it over dinner now, Sandy, actually. So if you want to talk about it some more, I could tell you about Jeff McCrone. But in Romans, Paul unpacks not the glory of an athlete, not, 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 not any glory that's associated with any famous person, someone who can paint or someone who could write, someone who maybe made a difference in politics, He's not talking here about someone who's done something so exciting that whole crowds would stand on their feet and cheer like happened that day at Gorimir Public School. He's talking about the God of the universe who came to earth. And he explains in great detail, sometimes with sombre tones, but more often in passionate tones, just how wonderful Jesus is. Now, I don't want to assume tonight that everybody here is a Christian. I actually am excited that one of the things that's um, a very regular occurrence here at church is that many people who are checking Jesus out come along to find out a little bit about Jesus because they might be looking into whether they want to become a Christian or not. They might have heard a Christian friend explain about Jesus and they've come along through an invitation or simply because you've looked it up on the website, I don't know. So I don't know if all of us are here are Christians here tonight. But I do know a number of us are. 
And what I want to reflect on, first of all, is I do want to speak to those of us who are Christians for a moment. Because I want you to consider this book of Romans that Paul writes here. And as he writes the book of Romans, I want to, as I said, I want to point out that he sometimes uses sober tones, like very sober, because this is a serious topic that he's talking about, right? He's talking about God who has come to earth, who's being born as a human being, God fully man, fully God. That in itself is so wonderful. It's amazing. The God who made it, the whole universe has actually become a human being to call us back to himself because in Romans Paul starts in chapter 1 by talking about the very great need that the human race has and that great need that we all have is that we need to be saved because we've all got this problem that the Bible calls sin and this problem we have called sin separates us from God who made the whole universe and in fact made us and he made us to have a relationship with himself. The first two human beings Well, Adam and Eve, they used to walk in the garden with God. In fact, the Bible says in Genesis that God walked in the garden. At the end of the day, he'd walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. The first two humans he made, he would walk with them and and he would have fellowship with them in the garden. I just want to pause on that for a minute. Imagine how wonderful that would be. God is the most beautiful person in the universe. Wonderful God. He's not just a powerful God who made the universe. He's a wonderful, loving God. And God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve and they would have been delighted by that. They would have been passionate about those moments they spent with God. And so not only does Paul write about Jesus in sober tones because he's so important and so great and he's the king of the universe, but he also writes in passionate terms about Jesus because, well, Jesus is God. The same God who walked in the garden with Adam and Eve is now walking on earth with human beings. And now Jesus, who walks with human beings, has called disciples to himself and taught them about God and taught them about what God sees us as. And he's basically in his teaching, Jesus time and time again has said, I've come to save you. That famous passage in John 3.16, for uh, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, shall not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus came knowing that we needed to be saved from something and that something was our own sin and rebellion, the Bible calls it. Sin is rebellion. Basically, we've ignored God. Human beings, though we've been made by God, we ignored him and we've gone about living our lives according to what we think is best instead of what God thinks is best. So instead of worshipping God as the God who created us and, and passionately giving him the praise that he deserves, we've actually turned our back on him. And I'd like you to imagine for a moment that year in 1977. Can you imagine if after that heroic effort of Jeff McCrowan in taking home that relay, if everyone just turned their back and went to the tuck shop to get themselves a hot dog or a sausage roll with sauce for an extra five cents or a meat pie or a packet of twisties that at the day used to cost seven cents. Imagine if people were already rifling through the change in their little zipper pocket in their stubbies looking for the right change for a Coke from the canteen, or we didn't have Coke in the canteen, I don't remember what we drank. Can you imagine if people were so focused on lunch that they hadn't paid attention to that wonderful run? Imagine if they turned their back on Jeff McCrowan, even as he was running towards the the finishing line. That would be terrible. But yet Adam and Eve, who used to walk with God in the garden, turned their back on him and when the snake tempted them to eat the fruit off the only tree in the whole garden that they weren't meant to eat off, did they turn to the snake and say, you're asking us to make a decision between a piece of fruit and the almighty God of the universe who loves us so much that he comes and he walks with us in the garden? You want us to turn our back on God so we can eat a piece of fruit? You're kidding, aren't you? But you know what Adam and Eve did? They did turn their back on the living God. And when the snake said to Eve, surely you will not die if you eat this fruit. No, he's like, yeah, no, no, God said we'll die if we eat this stuff. And the devil goes, no, no, surely you will, you know, God's not, you're surely not going to die. Anyway, he's like, yeah, maybe not. Maybe we could become like God, actually. Maybe we can become as beautiful as God. Maybe we can do things as great as he can do. Adam comes over, Eve, what's happening? Hey, this snake here, Adam, he's saying we should, you know, chow down on this fruit. And I reckon Adam's first response probably was a bit of, whoa, you kidding me? Actually do what God says not to do? Are you serious? He might have thought that for a second. I'll tell you what, it was only a second because straight away he's like, yeah, right, eh? 
why don't we have a go? So before you could blink, Adam and Eve are picking the fruit off this tree that God said don't eat off and they're eating it. They turn their back on the, on the passionate relationship they had with God and, and turn to a piece of fruit. I can't think of anything more symbolic of sin than that moment because that's where sin started, yes. But also, why would you trade a relationship, a personal relationship with a living God for a piece of fruit? But you know what? That has become the problem for the human race ever since. We trade the opportunity to have a wonderful, perfect, abiding relationship with God for things like pieces of fruit. Now, I don't know what your fruit is, but in Romans chapter 1, coming back to Romans, Paul says that we traded the worship of the one true God for created things. That's what he says there. He says in verse 19, Since what we knew about God was plain to them, but because it made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You see, it's clear how wonderful God is. You just, need, you just need to know how powerful he is by looking at what he's made, Paul says here in Romans 1. Now, I don't know if many of you are like me, really interested in this thing where we're going to apparently go and live on Mars. Apparently, people are spending heaps of time. SpaceX are doing it. Boeing are doing it. NASA are doing it. Apparently, every country in the world is trying to race to see if we can get to Mars. And one night, I said to, to one of my sons, Elijah, I said, tell me about the stars. What's going on with the you know, stars? And he was saying, you know, the planets don't twinkle, but the stars twinkle. And, you know, when you know that, you can look at the up in the, in the sky at night and you can tell the difference between planets and stars. You can look at that planet and you can think to yourself, that is millions of miles away from us. I think Mars takes three months to get to it, its shortest rotation around the sun. Three months it's that far away. You can imagine a rocket fanging through space from Earth trying to get to Mars from Earth and it takes it three months to get there. And that is the closest planet to us. How vast and huge is the universe? How many planets are there out there? We don't know. How many stars? Well, the Bible says there's more stars than there, than there is sand on the beach. You just think about the God who made that and you, you, your heart skips a beat, doesn't it? Like, that's tremendous, isn't it? Tremendous power. And yet the Word tells us that God holds the stars in His hands. That's how powerful He is. In Genesis, again, He spoke and the lights in the sky came into being. Isn't it beautiful that in Genesis, the writer of Genesis, Moses, says... That the stars are just lights in the sky that God made to light our night. See, there is a really interesting focus of God's creation. It's on us. He made this wonderful universe that's so vast and big so that we could exist in it and that he could have a relationship with us as we exist in this wonderful place. And it's obvious to us. We can see what God has done and yet we have turned our back on us. Oh, sorry, on God. See, it goes on in verse 21 of chapter 1. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave him thanks to him, but thinking became futile in their foolish hearts became darkened. And all they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And I think that first image of foolishness is so prominent in my thinking right now, trading a relationship with the one who made Mars and Venus and Saturn and Pluto, and that's just in our little part of the universe. He made so much more. He made the nebula. He made the black holes. He made black matter. We don't even know it. And in fact, he, on, you come back to the earth and you think about what he's made on this earth. We haven't even been down to some of the depths of the oceans yet. We haven't discovered it. It's so amazing. And yet, we trade our relationship with God for an apple or a pear or a plum or an orange, whatever it was. We, we don't know. But that's what we humans do and the Bible calls that sin. Verse 24 in chapter 1. Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires and their hearts. And the sad thing is, friends, that we have rejected God. So we have no excuse for his judgment. He's rightfully angry at us for the fact that we've rejected him. And yet God has planned a rescue mission. <laughs> he always planned to save us. And when Jesus comes in his ministry... Jesus starts to teach us that he has come to solve the problem of sin. 
And again, God is walking with the human beings and giving them another opportunity to turn away from the fruit or the fast car or the money or the relationship or the clothes or the whatever it is for you that becomes that thing that you turn to looking for passion. He gives us another opportunity to rightly direct our passion. Because the problem for us human beings is even though we've turned our back on a passionate relationship with God and worship of the one true God, we haven't lost our desire for passion. We haven't lost our desire for worship. And human beings, if you look around, people, everybody's worshipping something. Try and find someone that hasn't got some kind of idol in their life, that they've made their God, that they are worshipping. Because we want to be passionate. We, we've been made to be passionate by our Creator. But Jesus comes back to redirect our passion again, back to the only one who can fulfill and satisfy our desire for the passions that we have. It is a relationship with God himself. And so in Romans chapter 1 to 11, you see Paul talking about wonderful things like the fact that Jesus came to pay for our sin, that Jesus came to die on a cross so that we might not be punished for all the wrongdoings we've done, but we might be given the forgiveness that we don't deserve. In chapter 4, he says, Blessed are those, verse 7, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose Lord will never count them against him. So we all choose to pick the fruit off the tree in place of worshipping God. And to be honest, even those of us who are Christians can know that we try and delight in things that sometimes we know are not even going to delight us. Because the Bible teaches us that sin is sweet for a season and sometimes we know the things we're chasing after aren't going to give us satisfaction, but we kind of get lost in this rut. We don't know there's any other alternative sometimes. We get stuck. Something you might want to try when you go home tonight is try this to understand this idea of sin being sweet for a season because it does gratify, right? Go home. If you've got honey in the fridge, how many people got honey in the fridge or the cupboard? Go home, grab your jar of honey, put it on the top of the counter and unscrew the lid and get the biggest, baddest spoon in your cupboard and get that spoon and dig it into the honey and take a big pile of honey on your spoon. Try it tonight. Eat that honey, tastes good. Dead set. First spoonful, unreal. Sweet. Then go for a second one. You get the second spoon of honey in your mouth and it starts tasting a little bit too sweet. You ever got to that point in eating too much cake or too many chockies? Especially at Easter. Hands up if you've ever eaten too many chalky Easter eggs. Yep. <laughs> I think Julie Gale knows what I'm talking about. If you can get to your third and fourth and fifth spoonful of honey, you can actually start to realise that thing that used to taste sweet has turned bitter in your mouth and you will be lying on the floor after a sixth tablespoon not able to move with honey dribbling out of the corner of your right corner of your mouth onto the floor and you'll have to clean it up later and you'll be regretting the decision to eat so much honey because you'll feel sick all night. That's what sin does to us. And Jesus says, why do we choose this sin over this wonderful relationship we can have with the living God? Why do we choose that? And Paul says, we can be forgiven of this stupid choice we make, this crazy choice we make. We can be forgiven by putting our faith in Jesus, we can be given a gift of grace and forgiveness because Jesus is amazing. In chapter 5, he talks about the peace with God that we can have if we trust in Jesus alone. Jesus has come to earth as fully man and fully God. He was born with a human mother and his father was God himself. And so Jesus didn't have our problem of sin. So when he's faced with the choice of the piece of fruit or the jar of honey, he just goes, are you kidding me? I would rather get up in the morning before the sun comes out and go and kneel and pray on the side of a mountain in quiet, away from the noise of everybody else, so I can delight in my relationship with my Heavenly Father. I think it's really interesting contrast, and I don't know if there's been any meaning of this in the Scriptures, but Adam and Eve walked with, with God in the afternoon as the sun sets. And it's beautiful to read that when Jesus goes to be with his father by himself to have a chat with him, he wakes up before everybody else. It very well could just have been a practical problem because Jesus was surrounded by people who loved him. Does that say something? Why was Jesus surrounded by people who loved him? Because he was God. 
Now, there were people who hated him too, weren't there? There were. He got rejected. And there were some people that were only following because he, he made, you know, five loaves of bread into all this bread and there was fish everywhere and there was baskets and collecting and all this exciting stuff that was happening. Jesus was walking on water, healing the sick, casting out demons. And there were some people who thought this was some massive circus show. But at the core of the relationships that Jesus had, he had a group of 12 people who couldn't take their eyes off him. They thought he was wonderful and they wouldn't leave him alone. And they weren't perfect people. Peter was, was a classic. He was like a train wreck. He didn't know his left from his right. And Jesus just kept loving him and loving him and loving him and teaching him and teaching him and teaching him. And before you know it, even though Jesus had done all that for him, when Jesus gets arrested, Peter goes, I better run and hide. You know what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they took the fruit off the tree? They went and hid from God. And God went walking in the afternoon after they'd eaten the fruit. And he's like, Adam, Eve, where are you? Eat. Adam, hey, Eve, where are you? For the first time, there was no response. Can you imagine how heartbreaking that would have been for God? He made the whole universe to delight Adam and Eve. He made that incredibly powerful constellation of stars and planets up there to light their path at night time. What a wonderful gift he'd given them amongst all the other gifts he'd given them and then they weren't even responding. God knew what was going on. You can't hide from God. You might think you can with your little jar of honey in the corner. You might not think he notices, but he does know where you are every time you go to have a sneaky spoonful of honey. He always knows. You know, I went on a surf trip with a couple of mates once. For some reason, we adopted a little bunny rabbit. I have no idea to this day why we took the bunny rabbit with us on a surf trip. It was a terrible idea. We thought it was going to be like a dog that was going to hang out with us and just sort of run around, wait on the beach for us, mining our towels while we went for a surf. We thought it would sit around with us at night while we are all talking and sitting around the fire and hanging out. We'd chuck a carrot to it every now and again. But you know what happened? Even though we took this rabbit on our surf trip thinking he was going to be our little furry grey mate, as soon as that roller door opened on my mate's Tarago, <laughs> the rabbit did the bolt, ran away. And I remember feeling a bit disappointed. That rabbit ran into this dilapidated old garage and I'm thinking, I'm never going to see my rabbit again. I've lost my rabbit. <laughs> now, back in the day in the 90s when I had this little rabbit, 7-Eleven used to make Slurpees and they were all the thing. And the best Slurpee was a Black Widow Slurpee. It was grey. It was our favourite Slurpee. They don't make them anymore. But because we loved that Black Widow drink so much, we called the rabbit Slurpee. So here's me and my mates well, with our long hair and, you know, goofily walking around going, Slurpee! Hey, Slurpee! We're so dumb. Rabbits don't come when you call them. But we love the rabbit, so we thought the rabbit would love us back because we'd given it so many carrots and we'd hung out with it and we'd taken on a surf trip. And I'm thinking, oh, the rabbit's gone. But when I went into the, <laughs> went into the garage, I walk in and guess what I saw? There was a crack in the old fibro and the rabbit had gone for the hole but it had only been able to stick its head in the hole. And so there was a fluffy little grey bottom sticking out of the wall. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Man, if we had Instagram and social media back in those days, I would have been a full influencer with that photograph. It was hilarious. Instead of cats being the hot property of the internet, it would have been rabbits because of that photo. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen. But it was also pathetic. This rabbit thought that it was hiding from us and because it couldn't see us, we couldn't see it. So there we are standing there laughing, going, look at Slurpee, what a dumb rabbit. Now we gently pried Slurpee out of his hole, took him back, and we had a great weekend. And I'm sure to this day, well, actually, I've got to say he has passed away. Sorry, I shouldn't say to this day. But I'm sure for the years, maybe months, after he lived, <laughs> he remembered that day with fondness, because we did have a good surf trip. And his silliness at running away, you know, he ended up having a good time, lots of carrots. We're a lot like the rabbit people. I'm a rabbit, you're a rabbit. We, seriously, you think about this. You run away from God and you hide from God and you think you can do things in secret that nobody can see. How many people here have one of those VPNs that goes to America so no one knows what sites they visit? Anybody here got... You don't have to put your hand up. Oh, Sandy does, okay. A VPN is you can actually hide your activity on the internet, so even your internet browsing history and everything, no one knows where you've been. And then you can go, great, no, I can... Now, I'm not sure, I'm sure Sandy doesn't do this because there are good reasons for a VPN, but some people use it 
because um, they just want to go on Netflix in America, which is fine. If you want to see programs in America, whatever. But some people hide there and, and they think, if no one sees what I do, I can live without consequence. We think to ourselves, if, if my parents don't see what I do, I can live without consequence. It, some of the parents think, if my kids can't see what I do, I can live without consequence. But God sees us. We're like rabbits. We run and we hide from him. We choose the honey or the piece of fruit over the beautiful, everlasting relationship with God and the Bible says we become slaves to sin. We get stuck in that rut and we can't stop ourselves doing it. We need intervention. And Jesus comes in chapter 5 of Romans at the right time, verse 6, at the right time when we were still powerless because we were stuck in our rut, couldn't get out of it, like a rabbit with its head in a hole, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that a beautiful sentence? If you're in the Bible memorization, that's one of the verses in the Bible that's worth putting on the side of your wall in your bedroom. I wrote that on a little note and put it beside my bedside table when I was a little kid and I used to look at that every night thinking, that's wonderful. And the more you concentrate on the wonder of that, you think about it, you think about it, why would God care about me? You know, in year 10, fast forward in my life, year 10, I was in year 10 science and my teacher got up in science and said, do you know how vast the universe is? How small you are? What I want you to do tonight is go out into your backyard and look out and see how vast the universe is and think about how insignificant and small you are and stop taking yourself so seriously because you are nothing in comparison to the universe. I'm like, wow, that's great. Awesome. I don't think you're allowed to teach like that anymore, but I remembered it anyway. So I don't know what he was trying to get me to remember, but I remembered that. Anyway, that night I walked out into, into my backyard feeling a bit sad and sorry for myself, thinking I'm not that important. And I looked up into the sky and the realisation hit me of... Romans chapter 5. God didn't die for Mars. God didn't die, come down and become a human being for anything else. But he did for me and he did for you. Jesus came to die for us while we were still sinners, eating our honey, hiding our heads in the wall. He came and gently prized us out of the wall saying, hey, you want to hang out? Not only can I get you to hang out with us, I want to teach you to surf, little bunny rabbit. You want to come and hang out? Do you want to come and have a new life? Do you want to stop being a rabbit that hides in a hole? Do you want to stop being that sneak that goes into the kitchen and sneaks the honey when no one's looking? Or goes onto some weird web page on the internet thinking no one's going to know because I can just look at all this weird stuff? But do you, do you ever do that sin, little rabbit, and go, I'm not satisfied? My passion... I thought would be satisfied by this, but it's not. Jesus says, come with me and I'll teach you to live a whole new way. I'll teach you to live the way I live. Now, I can't teach a rabbit how to surf. I can't teach a rabbit to be a human. But Jesus teaches us how to think like God. Can you believe that? And the only thing stopping us is our own sin. And so he fixed it. So he lets those evil dudes arrest him while Paul, sorry, Peter, is hiding like a rabbit with his hole in the head. Sorry, hole in the wall. I'm getting my metaphors mixed up. He did have a hole in his head. He's like denying Jesus. Peter was his disciple. He couldn't take his eyes off Jesus for three years. Poor old Jesus had to go and hide in the mountains to pray because the guys wouldn't leave him alone. And now Peter's like, Jesus, whatever you want to do, we'll do it together. Yeah. And then as soon as Jesus gets arrested, Peter's like, I'm out of here, see ya. But he follows at a distance and someone goes, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And Peter's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not. And then a second time, and then a third time, he denies being a follower of Jesus, even after Jesus told him that's what he was going to do. Do you remember that? Jesus said, Peter, stop carrying on like a pork chop. I know you love me, but you're going to betray me, bro. Never, Jesus, I'll never betray you. I'll pull a sword and chop someone's ear off. That's what I'll do, but then I'll run away and hide. While he's chopping someone's ear off, Jesus going down, picking the ear up and putting it back on the guy's head and saying, no, 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 no. You, you see, you, you've got it all wrong. I'm going to teach you a different and a new kind of passion. Passion causes people to chop people's ears off. Passion causes people to be self-protective to such a degree that they'll deny the person that they love the most to stay alive. That's what Peter did. 
But Jesus willfully went to the cross and opened his arms to the whole world, didn't he? Didn't he? He opened his arms to the whole world when he was on that cross. It's the most symbolic death I've ever, ever heard of. He wasn't killed and crushed in this position. He was killed and crushed in this position. He opened his arms and says to the whole world, I will pay for your sin. I will pay for the honey. I will pay for the VPN account. I will pay for the fruit and whatever else you've gone looking for for joy and found nothing but sorrow and pain and loneliness and I will give you something that you could never imagine. Through his death, Jesus brings life. Therefore, in verse 12 of chapter 5, just as sin entered the world through one man, so death, so the death, let me say that again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. And he goes on. But, verse 15, the gift is not like the trespass. In verse 18, consequently, just as one trespass results in the condemnation of all people, so also one righteous act resulted in the justification and life for all people. What I just summarised there in quite a complex theological piece is that death and sin came into the world through the sin of Adam. But life and the answer to sin came through the death of one person, Jesus Christ where one act caused the damnation of the whole entire human race, Jesus opened his arms so that we all might be forgiven. Come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's nothing about what you do, it's what I'm going to do for you. And while he hung there on the cross, there were two thieves, and one hurled insults at him, and the other one said, Jesus, I don't know, this is amazing, hey? This, this glimpse of faith this man had just before he died, this thief on the cross, he said, Jesus, forgive me. And Jesus says, surely today you'll be with me in paradise. Bang, there's one. Bang, one. Jesus looks down at his accusers and he says, he says Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. After Jesus died, one of them goes, surely that was the Son of God. Bang, there's two. As Jesus was dying, two souls escaped eternal damnation through faith in what was going on and became Christians and how passionate is that? How exciting is that? It's better than Jeff McCrowan winning for Chiari in 1977. Because what Jesus won on the cross was already saving people before he even got across the finish line. Have you ever thought of that? There were two people who became Christians, bang, right there, and it just kept going. One more, one more, one more, one more. Before you knew it, the whole city of Jerusalem almost had become Christians. And it spread out all over the Roman Empire and it spread out all over the world, all the way to Australia. And I'm going to finish with the words of Romans 12. Because, friends, what we find in Romans 12, after Paul has fully unpacked that beautiful story in incredible detail, not only up to chapter 5, but all the way up to chapter 11, this is what he says at the end of chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable is his judgments. He's passed without trancing. Who has known the mind of God? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him were all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. See, what Paul's done there is he's got passionate, hasn't he? Yes, he's used sober tones to unpack what this sin is. And thank you for your patience tonight because we have unpacked that really carefully, as quick as we can, but still carefully tonight. But when you understand how big our problem is, when you see a solution, it's so much more exciting. We don't want cheap grace. Oh yeah, God forgives you. It's like, we need it. We need salvation because we can't stop going to the honey jar. We know it makes us sick, but we keep hiding our head in the wall like the rabbit. But here we've got an opportunity to run in the relay race. Because not only are we saved by Jesus, Jesus rises from the dead three days after he dies and he walks out of the tomb. And do you know what he's got in his hand? And I'm speaking metaphorically now. Do you know what he's got in his hand? A baton. That's what he's got in his hand, everyone. Jesus walked out of that tomb three days later after being executed in the most gruesome fashion. 
Like they wanted to make sure he was dead so bad. They even chucked a spear up into his guts, into his heart. And when they pulled it out, it drained out water and then blood. The plasma and the red blood cells all came out and they knew that his heart had stopped beating. He was dead, like dead as dead, dead, dead. Not hiding rabbit in a hole, like dead. They put him in a hole dead, thinking he'd never come out again. Three days later, he walked out with a baton. Yo, how's it going? Woohoo! And do you know who met him at that garden entrance to that tomb? Mary. Did she have sober tones when she finally realised who Jesus was? Not the gardener, but it was actually her Lord. Did, did she just go, oh, Jesus, nice to see you. Yeah, I'm a Jew, nothing good happens to us. Jews never win anything. Everyone laughs at us. All the people with our surname, you know, we never win races. Did she do that? She saw someone greater than Jeff McCrone walk out of the tomb and he had a baton in his hand. And guess what Mary wanted to do? She wanted to run. <laughs> she didn't just run. She started off like this. <laughs> and if there was any gardeners there in the garden, they would have been laughing at this woman like this, hitching a dress up with a hand out. This is how I like to imagine it anyway with a hand like this, see, like that. Why do you do that? So you can feel the slap of that baton going into your hand. Before I tell you about that baton change that day, what colour was the baton? It was red. It was red and it should have been red because it was by his blood that we have been saved. And the story of the red baton was meant to be passed on. So Mary put her hand out and Jesus whacked it into her hand. Firmly did that baton reach her palm. Strong were her fingers as she grasped the baton and did her arms pump as she ran to tell the disciples. She's running a relay. She's running a relay that goes back further than 1977. And at some point between the garden and the house that they were hiding, she swapped hands and put the baton in her other hand and she burst into the room where the disciples are all still crying, thinking Kiara never wins anything. <laughs> and she runs in with the baton and she slaps it into their hands and they take the baton and then they slap it into other people's hands and the baton goes through time. I've worked out that I think there have been 66 or 67, because I'm not good at maths, 66 or 67 baton changes through history because that's how many generations there have been since that first baton change. In every generation, there have been faithful Christians who've received the gospel baton, the red one, that tells the story I've told tonight and passes it on to the next generation. And now it's our turn. And you know what? We might be a bit nervous. But here's an instruction from Paul when you get ready for the baton change. If chapters 1 to 11 is about explaining how awesome Jesus is, chapter 12 is about how to start running the race through to the end of Romans. And this is how it starts, and it's incredibly beautiful. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. He's good and he's pleasing and he's perfect will. You'll find yourself walking through the kitchen and going to the Vegemite instead of the honey. You'll find yourself tempted to hide away when you make bad choices. But instead, you'll find yourself not trying to hide because you'll know and remember that you're forgiven and you don't have to feel guilty anymore because Jesus' death on the cross paid for your sin. You'll find yourself wanting to worship the creator God and walk with him. This is the great bit. Not just in the afternoon or the early morning, but all the time. We have been given a relationship with God and the dividing wall of hostility between us and God has been broken down by Jesus in his body and all we're called to do is to live as living sacrifices in view of his sacrifice for us. We just lay down all those other things, we sacrifice them. We, we don't 
worship them anymore. We, sac- we just put them behind us and we say, no, I'm now going to offer my body as a reasonable response to run in the relay with Jesus. Because unlike Kiara, who we didn't know we're going to win that day, we do know we're going to win the race, don't we? Because isn't that baton going to get across the, 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 the historical finishing line? The only baton that's going to cross that line is the red one. And friends, we are holding that today. And it is wonderful. And I just wanted to spur you, want to encourage you to keep running tonight. If sometimes you feel down or you feel a bit, bit, bit you know, COVID's terrible. All the stuff that's going on is hard. But we've got the baton still, haven't we? And you know what? There's another generation with its hand out waiting for our leg to finish. It's not quite finished yet. We've got a little way to go. We're all different ages, but we're all running together with this baton so we could pass it on to the next generation and keep doing that until Jesus comes back so that as many people, the full account who will be saved will be saved. So let me encourage you today that the worship of God is worth the whole of your life because he's given the whole of his life and asked you to spend your life forever with him and your life gets meaning by serving him. So let's run together. Amen. Thank you.